and the temperature today is a cool 47 degrees with a high in the low 60s. Enjoy it while it lasts, folks, because it won't be long till Sicily's breaking out her snowsuit and mucklucks. Now for the traffic report. Maggie O'Connell just drove down Main Street too fast. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we got a special request from Dr. Fleischman. He said it would go well with his breakfast. We're wearing this one out, Doc. I love that traffic report from Chris. Yeah, and it, tur- it turns out it's going to snow soon, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a little hint of snow. We talked about how uh, there's, there has been no snow, right, in Sicily that we've seen. We're seven episodes in. Yeah, I guess we're in the summer season of Sicily, Alaska. Not that we could tell. Yeah, it just seems like any other town. But, um, but yeah, no, the traffic report is hilarious. It's, you know, there's literally nothing going on in town. Uh, he just looks out the window. One car drives by. Maggie's, <laughs> Maggie's driving a little too fast. I like that. Yeah. I like that he knows, you know, just like the individual towns member and what they're up to. You can tell, like, yeah, by the car, you know, it's, there's not a lot to report. He's kind of just talking to maybe 30 people. Uh, you know, uh, well, we talked about the population is 800 or something. 839. Yeah. So, you know, maybe there are a lot of, I'm sure everyone loves Chris in the morning. What are we talking about, Charles? <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Sorry, I put you on the spot. You no, it was dying. actual cough. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Get a drink of water. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. All right. Cue me up. <laughs> what are we talking about, Charles? So we're talking about the Northern Overexposure Podcast, where we overanalyze each episode of the 1990 CBS television show, Northern Exposure. And then we try to introduce it to some new people, people who have never seen it before, and try to get their intake on it. So get a fresh, little outside, yeah, fresh outside opinions on the show. Yep. Uh, my name is Charles, and my name is Lee. Um, all right, let's just hop into it. I, you know, I, I never like it whenever. Uh, I think we. I like that we have sort of like a scripted intro, but I like to. I'd like to kind of disguise it. You know, like kind of hide it from. I don't like it always queuing up at the beginning. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, People yeah, yeah. skip that anyway. So. That's true. You always hit the, uh, what is that? 15 the, seconds forward. The 15 seconds forward, and if you still hear it, you hit it again. So we got to make sure that it fits. Uh, yeah, we have, to, we have to make sure it fits in 15 seconds so that if someone wants to skip it, uh, in fact, if it were 16 seconds long, you know, they hear one second of it, then they hit skip forward and they're good. That's smart. All right, we got to start timing ourselves. <laughs> so uh, the intro scene was Chris. Yeah, this is episode seven, mm-hmm. a Kodiak moment. Um, you said uh, in our last episode you were excited because of the title. Yeah, because it reminded me of a Polaroid moment. Yeah, um, a, Kodak, a Kodak moment, right? Yeah. Um, so Kodiak, I'm assuming, is a, it's a type of bear, right? Kodiak bear. Oh, you skipped forward. You were going to guess my little neat piece of trivia that oh, I had. Oh, what is it? Yeah, well, uh, so there's a bear being featured prominently throughout this episode that... Mm-hmm. Holling and Ed and Shelly are off to go hunt. Gotcha. But that type of bear is a Kodiak bear, mm-hmm. a.k.a. an Alaskan bear. Oh, okay, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's native or it's, uh, it pertains to the region here. We're in Sicily, Alaska, the fictional town. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, sorry. So we're, we're, we're talking about Chris, right? Chris's traffic report. Um, I, like, I like how he, uh, this is the second time he's used the phrase, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Do you recognize that? Is that... Meant to be taken literally, or is that just an expression? I think it's, uh, well, so it's an expression from like old uh, serial, I think it might have been like old comics, like comic books and stuff. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back at the ranch for like old westerny, um, it's just a, a, a very a common segue. 
Do you, oh. do you know, like, do you remember, like, reading comic books as a kid and it's like, meanwhile... And then yeah, I remember the meanwhile in a yeah. cup, but never. I Back don't at the ranch is, is like a, I guess a classic. It, it was commonly used a lot. Oh, th- well, we talked about this in previous episodes, but this television show uses a lot of old expressions and idioms. Yeah, I mean, uh, so this is, as we said, from the 90s, so it feels a little more dated. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps we're 20 years in the future, um, but uh, even actually, still. wait, no, that's we're like 30 years in the future almost. 29. Um, even so, yeah, it's, uh, it likes to pull from um, some antiquated things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going off on the intro scene, we see that we've, we're seeing Maggie speed through the streets. And yeah. it turns out she's delivering something. But yeah, she's got some sort of package. That's the reason why Chris has spotted her driving too fast. Uh, she seems to have this rush delivery. Mm-hmm. And I believe, does the box actually say rush on it? Or Yeah, it does. Know, so visually, we, without even saying a word, we can tell that she's got some package sitting on her passenger seat that she's looking at and trying to drive quickly. Mm-hmm. And I love the, in, the contents of the box. Yeah, so what happens? She brings it into Joel's office. Mm-hmm. And he rips it open, and it's just full of New York bagels. Full to the brim of bagels. And that's not how you package bagels, right? Absolutely There's not. There's no, like, wrapper. It's just... Literally, she opens up the cardboard, or sorry, Joel opens up the cardboard and bagels are exposed to the elements. Yeah. Immediately. (laughs) No, you're exactly right. That is not up to USPS slash UPS par or even FDA par. Like there's so many, so many things wrong with that packaging, but it makes for a hilarious television scene of him just opening it up. Yeah, it's quick. It's quick. It's immediate. We see immediately that there are bagels in there. Um, Maggie is offended, I guess. Uh, I think she was under the impression that it was some sort of medical emergency. Um, but Joel was like, I I never said medical emergency. I paid you. You brought me the bagels. We're good, right? Why are you mad? Yeah, I actually think Joel is completely in the right here. Yeah. (laughs) He just employed her services, which is a pilot delivery system. Mm -hmm. And he wanted bagels. Yeah. And he, I think he offers her some bagels. He definitely gets Marilyn some bagels, uh, though he does retract them at the end of the scene, right? Or is that just in the in the deleted scene? I think that's just in the deleted scene. Um, well, I know what happens is uh, let's try to pack this up as neatly as possible. Um, so essentially, he's got all these bagels, um, and uh, yeah, he gets P- a call from Peter Gilliam, Pete Gilliam from mm-hmm. episode one, and you know, recurring character. I just love the rapport that they've established over the phone um, because. You know, Joel almost calls him like a son of a bee. Yeah. Uh, he's like, oh, how's it going? You slick little son of a, you know. It, and then they cut it off because, you know, it's on CBS. They're like, we can't curse. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just funny how, you know, he so outwardly hates Peter to his face. Um, Pete, I guess he's never really referred to as Peter. I should stop saying that. Pete Gilliam. Pete Gilliam. Um, and Joel learns he has to teach a hygiene class. Um uh, I think it's like a six-hour drive. So he's trying to convince Marilyn to come with him. He doesn't want to drive alone. Um, Marilyn denies uh, the request. She says she's got a power to go to. And that's why I said I think Joel like immediately retracts the bagels from her. Maybe that's only in the deleted scene. But he he's like, okay, you don't want to come with me? I'll take my bagels back. Yeah, bagels are only for people who help me. Mm-hmm. Well, you, here's a, a really neat little piece of trivia. Marilyn states that it's possibly because of the water in New York that makes the bagels really special. But I looked into it and it's actually only a small part of why bagels in New York are specifically so delicious. I've heard this urban legend or the, I've heard this, um, this line of thinking that the, the pizza in New York, the bagels, it's all in the, 
New York water? Because that's, you know, I guess they're trying to figure out what the secret ingredient could be. Why do they taste so good? But you maybe did some research? Yeah, I found an NPR article that delved deep Uh. into this. So the water of New York specifically has a low concentration of calcium and magnesium, which makes the dough softer, therefore the pizza dough or the bagel. So it is the water, right? Well, you know, it does make it softer, but the real key ingredient is the fact that they boil the bagels. Oh. Yeah. So whenever you boil the bagels, it's kind of like flash frying a steak right before you grill it so that you can keep the juices inside. So whenever they boil the bagels for one to three minutes, it does essentially the same process. So you can keep all the flavors. Sorry. (laughs) This cat, there's a cat in our recording studio. This will probably get cut, but uh, right now she's climbed on the top of a a kitty tree and she's trying to touch the ceiling. (laughs) She's screaming. It is an incredibly hilarious sight. Um, I think she's quieted down. Um, No, so flash boiling um, is like, is searing a steak? Is that what you said? Yeah, so whenever they... Similar to? Yeah, it packs the liquid inside the uh, bagel Mm. and expands it. So that's how they do it. But modern bakeries, they usually automate it in a hot oven with steam. They don't boil it. Interesting. So that's why... That's what sets sets apart New York bagels. Yeah, that's what makes it so delicious. I just wanted to look into it. I remember the first time I saw this episode, uh, when I was watching it in high school for the first time, uh, I was pretty blown away that Joel would, um, you know essentially pay out of the pocket to get uh, New York bagels flown in. Um, and they must have been, you know, same day because bagels, you know, they, they don't, they only stay fresh for a certain amount of time. Um, but that's not totally uncommon as I've come to learn. Uh, again, you know, I'm from the South. I live in the South and uh, there are plenty of um, delis and bakeries that, you know, get fresh New York bagels uh, that you can buy here in the South. So they must be delivered, you know, overnight or something or oh, immediately. Wow. Well, you know, you can actually order ice cream off the internet now and it can come delivered to you. Yeah, I guess fine. So that, that comes through, uh, I guess it's transported in a cooler or something. Yeah. So it doesn't melt. But that seems like I never would have imagined that we could have had that. Uh, you know, it's 2019, we baby. I know, 2019. So then we go neatly into plot B where Chris is still in the studio. He's taking a collar, mm-hmm. Janet. Oh, yeah. This, this is an interesting scene because. Uh, it, I actually um, really like the way the information is uh, dealt in this scene. Um, Chris has is taken a caller, and she apparently is an ex Sicilian. She lives in L.A. or something, right? She lives she lives out in the um, on the West Coast, mm-hmm. um, and she seemingly, you know, kind of uh, unsubtly seems to have some sort of a connection, attraction to Chris, perhaps. I sure do miss Sicily, Chris. Oh, really? Uh, what do you What do you miss most? Oh, I don't know. Clean air, I guess. My dad, caribou steak, and definitely Chris in the morning. Especially a little dimple on your... Hey, hey, Janet. Uh... (laughs) Chris is kind of unable to keep his attention on this caller. He's, uh, while this call is coming in, he's looking out the, you know, windowpane of K-Bear, and he sees men in uniform. Uh, You know, sort of like what seems like a... You've seen this scene in movies and TV whenever uh, a parent's uh, child is killed in war you know, two men in uniform come up and, uh, and actually typically this is kind of usually, uh, um, depicted in, in sort of a, um, 
in a way without dialogue as it is in this episode. You know, we don't, we only see it from Chris's point of view. We don't get to hear what's actually happening, but we instantly understand the image of two men in a uniform. I like, like as I said, I like the way the information is dealt in the scene, but I guess when you think about it, this is sort of a, the common tactic for approaching a scene like this, right? Yeah, it's up to par. They usually always depict scenes like that, but I agree with you. I do like that Chris is having to deal with a caller while mm-hmm. he's watching this... Uh, this scene fold, fold out uh, yeah. without any sound, just visually. He sees the, the two men come into the station. They talk to Maurice, uh, and immediately, um, you know, Chris maybe... Um, throws to some music or something and he steps into Maurice's office and asks him, what's going on? Is everything okay? Uh, oh, actually, yeah, the music he plays is uh, Glenn Campbell's uh, Rhinestone Cowboy. It was a request from Janet. Um, and it's a great song, uh, but I think it, it's a perfect uh, sort of uh, score that underlines the scene that's going to unfold with Maurice and Chris. Yeah, I like that. That song's playing on the background where while Maurice and Chris are talking about what just transpired between yeah it's sort of a forlorn scene with this uh this juxtaposition of Mm -hmm. rhinestone cowboy um so it turns out that malcolm bought he bought it he bought the farm is that what he says or he just bought it he just bought it did not buy any farms (laughs) no farm are you Uh, familiar with that expression bought the farm means uh you die right yeah but what is it why does it why is it called bought the farm so yeah there's a theory about it where the, it's a military expression, and back in the day, the pilots, they might crash into a farm. And oh. when they crash into a farm, the farmer could sue the government, and he could have enough money to pay off his mortgage on the farm. Wow. Hence, the pilot paid for the farm with his life. Wow. So he bought it. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, and actually, um, I don't know if it's explicitly stated in the episode, but in the deleted scenes, uh, we do learn that um, Mal- uh, sorry, Malcolm is, is Maurice's brother who, who uh, quote-unquote bought the farm. Um, we do learn that the way he died was uh, a heart attack while he was piloting. And so he did crash. I don't know if he crashed uh, into a farm, but, <laughs> but no, yeah, his, his plane did come down um, while he was piloting. Yeah. Um, did we mention, yeah, Malcolm is his brother's name. I think uh, Maurice titles him... Malcolm P. Dam Minifield is, is <laughs> Dam. In, in the subtitles, Dam is in quotation, so it's like a nickname, I it's guess. It's like epithet, maybe? Yeah, that's an interesting nickname. Just call him Dam Minifield. <laughs> um, but he's referred to as Malcolm throughout the entire episode. Yeah, and I think that we're with Chris in the same boat in that we didn't know that Maurice even had any siblings. Yeah, um, yeah the way the information is uh, doled out here, uh, Maurice says uh, Malcolm bought it. Um, Chris is, you know, very sorry about that. And Chris asks, okay, well, who's Malcolm? Mm-hmm. Malcolm's my brother. Oh, I didn't know you had a brother. I'm sorry to hear that. And um, let's kind of like go into sort of the uh, overall context of this yeah, sort yeah. of storyline. Um, Maurice uh, is, you know, obviously distraught from his brother passing away. And it brings up um, a lot of uh, sort of, new thoughts that Maurice hasn't been considering. Uh, Maurice is, I believe he says 52 years old or maybe 58 or something. He's in his 50s. He's 52, they 52. say, in the deleted scenes. Right. Again, yeah. The, lots of deleted scenes in this episode that, um, you know, as opposed to, say, maybe in the last episode, a lot of the deleted scenes are more uh, just extensions of scenes. There are whole scenes cut out of this episode. Um, and predominantly, uh, they apply to the Chris-Maurice storyline. But yeah, so Maurice is 
um, you know, upset. He's reconsidering a lot of things. He sees Joel uh, sort of for a health examination. Um, but as it unfolds, we see that Maurice is um, nervous about his bloodline um, or his his empire, as he calls it. He, he doesn't really have anyone to pass it on to. He doesn't want to, um, you know, all of this wealth that he's amassed. He doesn't want to go, he doesn't want it to go to the federal government after he passes away. He wants an heir, he, he says. Yeah, he's trying to leave behind a legacy, which brings about one of the themes of this episode, which is dealing with mortality or just mm-hmm. a cycle of life and how it keeps going on and on. Yeah. So I think Which that- kind of, yeah, that is a good, good that you point out because that is kind of, um, we'll get there, I guess, at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of tie-in with um, the circle of life. Yeah. Well, let, before we get into there, let's just talk about this plot line for okay. a little bit, if you're, if you're okay with that. Of course. So I have to say, just right off the bat, the this whole plot line is a little too sitcom-y. They jumped the shark, maybe, right? Yeah. This, has Northern Exposure finally jumped the shark here? I guess by six episodes, they <laughs> decided to jump the shark. Let's so, just go for it. Yeah. You know? To explain the context of this is... It's that we said previously that Maurice is looking for a legacy, an heir Mm -hmm. to leave behind. So in order to do that, he looks to Chris. Yeah, uh, it is, um, as I said, this is kind of a hard to to follow, uh, hard to, you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit for this to work. Um, But essentially, um, Maurice uh, takes Chris out, to the what is it, one hundred and fifty thousand acres or something that? Uh, I thought it was fifty five thousand acres. Fifteen thousand acres. Fifteen thousand. Ah, oh, okay. So he shows Chris in this magnificent wide shot um, all of this land that Maurice owns, and Chris is like, "That's great." Uh, so what are we getting at here? And essentially, Maurice um, wants to adopt Chris as a son. Uh, you know, as we said, to be an heir to his empire. But it's kind of. Yeah, it's kind of a ridiculous notion. Um, I will say, while it is hard to, you know, suspend your disbelief in this manner, I think Chris does a really good job in this scene, or I should say rather uh, John Corbett, the actor playing Chris, uh, in, in sort of convincingly playing uh, his acceptance of, of this, uh, of being, uh, I guess, adopted by Maurice, right? Yeah, he handles it well, but just... The whole plot and plot line of itself is incredibly silly. Yeah, it's like, how would this work? Um, you know, maybe things work a little differently in you know middle of nowhere, small towns. Um, but as I said, Chris uh, naturally he's kind of surprised by this prop, uh, proposition. But you know, he says, uh, "What the hell? I'll give it a shot." You know, he's he's just going along with it for the fun of it. Um, yeah, maybe this is just how it works. In Sicily. Yeah. I just think it's too zanny, too wacky. It's like one of those... It's definitely been overdone before in sitcoms where they're saying like one character's adopting another and it's so ridiculous. It's played for laughs. Like Chris having to call Maurice's dad. Yeah, Maurice is like... Um, call Keeps calling Chris uh, his son and he actually insists that Chris call him dad. Um, they have a bunch of uh, heart-to-heart, father-to-son talks, mm. <laughs> which are kind of awkward, and you know they feel very forced. Um, but again, somehow it is uh, played somewhat believably by uh, 
You know, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of uh, the Maurice character overall, but I think he, he does have uh, some shining moments. And the actor is actually not that bad. He is playing a lot of laughs in this episode. It, it, again, it's very goofy. Yeah, they, they realize that it is goofy, but... Maybe it's a little, it's a little bridge too far. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. That's the perfect expression because this just doesn't, just doesn't seem like it belongs in a hour-long drama slash comedy show, but more so on the drama side. I just... Yeah, it's it's a weird. Uh, I had a I had a weird um had a like sort of a strange reckoning when I was watching this episode last night. Uh there was a moment when I was watching it and I was hit with this feeling of um nostalgia and uh, you know, just love for the show, but you know, preparing for this podcast, I'm taking a lot of notes and you know, obviously I have to when if I'm being honest, this is Maybe one of my least favorite episodes that we've watched so far. Um, it might take the cake because there's been some episodes that I say, you know, this isn't the greatest episode. This is my least favorite. But I actually seem to really enjoy. There's something about it that has merit. This episode is kind of zany, as you said. Kind of weird. Um, yeah. And I, I almost feel like uh, when I'm watching the show for the podcast kind of like robbing myself of some enjoyment of the show. <laughs> so like I kind of, you know, set out to start this podcast to kind of enjoy the show with you, but maybe I'm just playing myself overall because now I can't, it's hard to enjoy. <laughs> it's kind of hard to enjoy sometimes. But uh, but no, it was just sort of like a fleeting feeling I had. Uh, you know, there are, the show still surprises me today. Um, perhaps well, I'm being too critical. <laughs> I mean, on the other side of the coin, on this particular episode, uh, I was starting to see how the characters are all becoming their own individual personality types and how they could be paired off and yeah. play off of each other. Because, mm -hmm. for instance, in this one, Maurice and Chris are being paired together. Joe and Maggie, of course, are yeah. being paired together. We do which... get some, like, in the last episode, we have sort of um, some Joel and Maggie, but this episode, we really, right off the back with the bagels, we start off with some argument. This is, we're, we're back to form. Return yeah. to form and, with Joel uh, and Maggie. Ed, Schelling, and Holling are being paired together. Mm -hmm. And the, it, it's starting to get to the stage in a television show where you can see different personalities colliding with each other. Mm -hmm. And the audience realizes the personalities of each character so they can understand why they're reacting in such manner. Yeah, so, it's, it's been established. It's sort of before this, it's, they've kind of auditioned different characters with yeah. each other. And now it's like okay, really anything goes now. Yeah. Chris, yeah. you know, anyone can pair off with each other and, and it works somewhat. Yeah. Even if this is a poor demonstration, like <laughs> the, how am I trying to say this? No. Like the idea and the fact they're going with those pairings is great. It the execution. The promise, yeah. The execution is not so much. They're working it out. Yeah. They're working out the kinks out. of the system. But yeah, uh, got to say that's my Maurice and Chris's not my favorite plot. Um, well, you did mention uh, Ed, Shelley, and Holling. Do we want to talk a little about that? Go yeah, ahead. and I do like that plot. Okay, go for, for it. If you look at it in the wide scope, it doesn't really make much sense, that entire plot line. In fact, inevitably, it leads to nowhere. Yeah. Really. Which is, um, I, I always, uh, maybe it's just me kind of defending the show, but I uh, we are, I do, I do enjoy that we find a lot of times at the end of an episode, uh, sometimes these plot lines don't really resolve in a meaningful way or the way they resolve is not um, sort of like a, a plot resolution. It's more of uh, in line with uh, searching a character or a, a, a feeling. Yeah, um, you're right. It's an inward reflection on the characters because 
and we'll, we'll skip ahead, I guess, just for yeah. this particular point. So they're trying to hunt down Jesse the bear. Yeah, Jesse and- the bear is this ominous um, monster, like kind of mythic uh, legend of a bear that has returned um, and hauling, who has, uh, you know, sort of sworn off hunting, decides that he's going to have to take his gun out again. Yeah, he's going to have to kill the beast. First off, how does Ed know that Jesse's back in town? Man, Ed, as we said, is sort of the low-key genius, I think, as Ty uh, pointed out in episode four. He's also a native. He's got that mystical side, just sort of that sixth sense, you know? Of knowing when bears come to town? Well, uh, it's established that um, the last time they ran into um, Jesse, Ed was sort of a a tracker with hauling. It was Ed and hauling together. Mm. And, uh, you know, I find that interesting because... This would have must have happened years ago. Ed would have been even younger, but yeah. he's still sort of risking his life with hauling, at least in this this the backstory of this uh, that has been established. So you know, I think uh, I think Ed has some uh, special powers that you know they like to pull out of the, well, of his back pocket yeah, every once in a I, while. I like that though, because Ed's not he's a delivery man. He's a film buff. He's he knows how documentaries and how the filming works. And he knows how to track bears seemingly. Mm-hmm. Like it's just he's an all around handyman that the writers can always point to and say, like, well, how does how does this person, how does a character do this? And like, oh well, Ed, Ed can do just, it. Just get Ed in there. Yeah, yeah just get Ed. He'll Ed, do it. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I Kids really love like it. that. Let's just throw Ed into the story. Um, so go ahead. Yeah, they start tracking down the bear. Shelly's with hauling a lot in the tent together. Yeah, and she actually himself. insists, uh, despite Hauling's disapproval. Shelly insists that uh, she join them. And so she's also uh, a good sort of window for um, an outsider because we know that Hauling and Ed have this history with Jesse. And a lot of that is um, explained to us, the viewers, through Shelly because she's an outsider here. And so she asks all the questions that we might want to know the answers to. Yeah, she makes for a great device for the audience to understand questions out of. So they go off and try to hunt down Jesse the bear. And at the end of this plot line, they don't, they don't pull out a gun for him. They pull out a camera. Yeah. So it's actually Ed who, um, who resolves the storyline. Uh, and it, it's funny because um, I don't know if it's Ed who brings it up in the beginning. Alling, this is your gun. Yes, it is, Ed. Well, I thought when we were going after Jesse this time, it was going to be with the camera. But Hauling has to say, look, this is, a, this is a special scenario. I know I've sworn off hunting, but it calls for um, the destruction of this evil force, <laughs> Jesse. <laughs> yeah, but Ed, not like he disagrees, but he just sees it in a different manner. Mm-hmm. Because whenever he does spot Jesse mm-hmm. and Hauling and Shelling, Yeah, are- he does make a choice. I guess you're right, because he... There is a gun in the car, I'm assuming. Yeah, uh, there is. But uh, he the grabs the, the camera co- yeah. instead. And I like that. And like we were talking about earlier, how the show doesn't really have explosive climaxes. It's mostly just inward uh, reflection. And- yeah. We can see that Ed is a person who just wants to just wants to examine the bear peacefully, just wants to see what other, you know, introspection he can get out of this rather than Yeah, he has a certain respect, it. I guess, for the bear. Yeah. And I like that. So, and really, first off, before I get more into this, yeah, why is there four different scenes of 
Shelly and Maurice getting into tents. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I'm not like yeah, literally so four much, scenes. There's so much plot line uh, that is cut. There is so much deleted scenes in this episode that could have served the Chris Maurice plot. I guess maybe that just wasn't working no matter what. So they were like, we should probably cut a lot of this because it's yeah. hard to follow, mm-hmm. hard to believe. Um, so instead we get all these scenes of a, uh, Essentially, what ha- what happens is every time we return to this Jesse plotline, um, it seems like they're about they're getting really close on the chase. Um, but before they can move any further, Holling or Shelley always retreat into the tent again and uh, sort of get it Just on for canoodle. lack of a better term. Scootily pooping. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's what, if that's what the kids are calling it. That's these what the days. kids are calling it. I think. But there's um, four different yeah. shots of that. I just have a comment uh, sort of about this overall. I, I uh, Obviously, it's, not, it's a hard pill to swallow throughout this entire season and series. Uh, Shelly being, what, 18 years old, Holling being 63, 63? or something. Yeah. It's a hard pill to swallow. Um, sometimes they do it more gracefully than others. But in this episode, um, I don't know if I can blame the writing or the actors or the direction, but chemistry is just way off. Like, especially this, the scene, any scene between Shelly and Holling just feels kind of like, um, amateurs in an acting class, especially the way it's directed too. It's just like, all right, now you're going to put your hands on her shoulder, look her dead in the eyes, turn to the camera. It just feels very staged and it doesn't feel like real chemistry. And so I also just find it really, uh, uncomfortable that Shelly, is referring to hauling as her main squeeze. I just don't like that terminology. <laughs> so it's it is a um, it's a little hard for me to get through. Um, yeah, I totally agree with you. This seems like one of those uh, scenarios where it is telling and not showing, whereas actual right. good writing is show don't tell. Right. So they're explicitly there's a lot of exposition them. here because there's a lot of backstory they're trying to unpack. So mm-hmm. it is telling a lot. Yeah, and they shouldn't be doing that. And you're right that it does remind me of uh, really amateur acting, like as if the director came onto the set and said, all right, your two characters are in love and like just show that you're in love through very cheesy hand-holding or shoulder-touching. Or Yeah, like, I'm uh, not trying to like... Um, I'm not trying to put down the director, but there isn't a deleted scene. Uh, you can hear him over the walkie-talkie when they're in the car. He's like, all right, now look at hauling now. You're falling more in love. Uh, so it's just like the actors have to, you know, they don't really have a lot of material to work with. They just uh, have to play this emotion. That's one of the most complex human emotions to yeah. play in such a silly sort of sitcom-y format. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't necessarily think it's the actor's fault. I think it's really just the writing's fault and they're just working with the best they can with mm-hmm. what they got. And maybe the chemistry just wasn't wasn't really going on. Um, I do want to say, uh, as you said, we get like an excessive amount of scenes of, um, you know, Shelly or Hauling retreating to the tent. But there are a couple scenes in this uh, this sort of plot line that are, you know, interesting. Um, I don't think they're masterful necessarily um, in the way they're blocked out and shot listed, but they are interesting to note. Um, in the first scene where they're packing up to go on the hunt for Jesse, and it's when Shelly convinces Holling, you got to let me come with you. Just one thing to point out, um, it's kind of hard to tell. I don't know if I noticed this before, but uh, it's raining in this scene. I don't know if you could tell. Wait, what? It's raining. Um, like If you look really closely, you can see the rain, which um, 
actually, it's an interesting thing to bring up. A lot of times when you're trying to photograph rain, because it's almost invisible a lot of times when you're you're, uh, shooting, um, you have to, a lot of times they'll mix uh, milk with water whenever they're running a rain machine because it it comes out a little more white and uh, it picks up better on camera, reads better on camera. Yeah, it's one of those advertising tricks that they use, Mm -hmm. I guess, because I think in order to make... Uh, pumpkin pie, and you know the cream that you put on top of uh, pie? The whipped cream? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little whipped cream. It's actually Gillette shaving cream that they use. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it I doesn't guess because actual um, whipped cream will melt. So it's just a little a little trick they use. And um, yeah, so it's not hard to believe that they're, it could actually be raining in the scene and you don't really notice. Um, but you can see sort of the streets are a little darker. They've been wetted mm-hmm. down. Um, you do see a little bit of rain if you look closely um, in that scene. And just the other thing I wanted to point out in this plot line is... Um, I believe it's when um, Holling explains his reasoning for why he stopped hunting. Uh, it, it's, again, it's uh, pretty staged. It's very theatrical, very telling. Mm-hmm. Um, Holling and Shelley are standing in sort of a clearing in the forest, um, and Holling is telling Shelley his dream, a dream that he had that changed his perspective. And it's really interesting because uh, as he's recounting this dream, the camera sort of dollies in a semicircle around him. And so we get this very uh, swooping, uh, moving sort of um, visuals as he's recounting this dream, essentially a nightmare that he had. Um, he used to be a big game hunter, as we mentioned, and this in this dream, every animal that he killed um, resurfaces, sort of like uh, in a very menacing way. I think they're all actually packing heat. They all have <laughs> guns, so it's kind of silly, but um, it is a frightening thing to think about, that every life... Uh, uh, every animal's life that he took uh, is coming back uh, for him. And so this is, I guess, essentially the reasoning why he has stopped hunting until, I guess, now. Yeah, and he reasons that until the animals themselves can actually start packing heat, he won't be packing heat against them. But for Jesse, he'll make an exception for it. And I think that's as good as any reason for a character to give up hunting. I like it, yeah. I think yeah. it's interesting because, uh, you know, as I said, I love when this... Uh, when the show employs dream imagery and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and though we don't necessarily see the dream, uh, it is um, recounted in a very theatrical way um, that I mm-hmm. like. Uh, where should we hop to from here? Well, before we hop into the third plot line of Joel and Maggie, mm-hmm. uh, I forgot to bring this up earlier, but okay. uh, it's a neat little tidbit that the showrunners threw into here. Whenever Maurice and Chris are having father-son bonding time, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. they're watching a television show. Yeah. And that television Very show... Very cheesy, sort of. A, it's a kid cheesy. and a grandpa talking. Yeah, so cheesy. But that television show is A Year in the Life, and it's a miniseries that ran in 1987 on NBC, but it was created by Joshua Brand and John Falsey. Are you kidding me? Nope. Wow. So no wonder they had the rights to use it. They're like, all right, what kind of show can we... uh, Wow, so corny. They've come a long way from... uh, I believe the line is... So the setup is... um, It's a breakfast table. Grandfather is uh, talking to his grandson. And the son is trying to... The grandson is trying to get these uh, signatures for a petition against uh, nuclear energy or nuclear power. Um, So it's just... The resolution is... uh, corny essentially the kid is going to go about the neighborhood and try to get all these signatures for his petition the grandfather says um well you know it's a bit early uh you might wake a bunch of people up um and the kid says 
like I know, or like yeah, that's know. essentially what I'm trying to do. So there's a little subtext in, <laughs> you know, wake up, smell the coffee. Yeah. And, and then the kid hops onto his bike and a golden retriever follows him while he's on the bike. <laughs> it's a uh, super leave it to beaver. Yeah. Very American happy, uh, family. Um, I'm glad you did that research because in the, in the, sh- in, in the episode of Northern Exposure, they only refer to it as the Richard Kiley show, which must be because that's the actor, the actor that plays them. The, yeah. the grandfather, I guess. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of odd, though. They must have had the rights to f- show the television show, but... Maybe it was just uh, they felt, or maybe in reality it was a... It would have been common knowledge if you saw that. You're like, oh, that's the... Uh, it's a day in the life, the Richard Kiley show, you know? Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> um, or maybe they were just a little embarrassed to use so much that's, of their that, own. That's what I'm going with. I think they were just a little <laughs> so embarrassed. So they're trying to hide it. Uh, yes. So now we hop into the third plot line, which is my favorite of the two plot lines so far that we've shown, which is Maggie and Joel. And like we talked about earlier, Joel has to be shipped off to Boswell is what what it's called. Yeah. Uh, Six hours, six hour car drive away from Sicily. And Maggie has to accompany him. Yeah. So he has convinced Maggie. Actually, I was kind of forgot how, but I believe it's a, it's a state-funded uh, travel expense, so he can pay her, you yeah. know, a good rate. And he's like, all right, you know, Marilyn's got this powwow. Why don't you just fly me, you and me, we'll go teach this class on hygiene. <laughs> um, and it turns out that it's on childbirth. Yeah, when he gets there, uh, he sort of makes his opening spiel about hygiene, and everyone's kind of looking at him. If you haven't, If you haven't figured it out yet, a lot of the women in the class uh there are pregnant uh, you know visu- vis- visibly pregnant and uh someone points out hey i mean i thought we were here for um what is the class that they're they signed up for it's like a, a parenthood uh yeah it's something of that nature and it's a fun plot line uh, we do get to see a uh, sort of compare and contrast between joel's methods and maggie's methods mm-hmm. um and yeah joel just approaches it as a doctor and also just i i guess it's a male centric view or just like a very detached point of view. Cause his four word advice is I want my epidural. Yeah. It's in like, order here, to just- here are four words that you need to know. This is how he opens up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, his birthing class. Uh, I want my epidural, <laughs> um, which is played for laughs. Cause immediately as he says that we cut to the next scene. Um, and there's actually a lot of, those types of punchlines in this episode. I don't know if this is necessarily characteristic of what we've seen, but it's obviously a signature of this episode. Almost every uh, punchline ends this way. There's like a punchline at the end of the scene and then a a hard cut to the next scene. Um, I just want to say, you said, you know, sort of the male-centric, the company line uh, as as Maggie uh, complains to Joel, you're just feeding them the company line. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually did have a problem with a lot of the jokes in this sort of plot line. I, I felt that was pretty condescending to women. I mean, it, it's playing it for laughs, but, um, you know, like someone asks, okay, how will I know when it's time that the baby's coming? And Joel says, uh, trust me, all mothers show up. Um, it's kind of a joke, but almost like kind of, it was, to me, it felt condescending. I don't know if yeah. you got that. No, I definitely got that too, where, Joel is obviously being really dismissive toward it, though I mm-hmm. will defend it by saying that I agree with you. I think they're mostly just showing that Joel is being a complete jerk. Like, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, but Joel, I can, Joel is... Yeah, I, I can see your perspective on there. And I will say that there was only... I counted only one joke that was not 
uh, a little bit mean spirited toward women, and it's the one whenever one of the women is actually yeah. giving birth. This and is she actually kind of funny. I, mean, I do, I do like that. It's joke a very a lot. Air, like airplane, the yes. movie style. Go ahead, tell me the joke. Yeah, and she's going. She says it's time, and then Joel says no. Uh, it's Newsweek. Yeah, Joel's reading a copy of Newsweek. Yeah, so it's a little prop <laughs> gag. He's got a little yeah um, prop comedy. Uh, um, just speaking again about. Um, you know, maybe the defense of this sort of condescension to yeah, women yeah. is uh, is a way to characterize Joel as unlikable, detestable, um, which she commonly is in a lot of episodes. Uh, there is a scene, um, actually wonderfully shot, I think, uh, another use. There's a lot of great wide shots in this episode. You know how much I love those. Uh, <laughs> but um, after their first um, class that Joel and Maggie teach, sort of like in uh, the main street of Sicily, Maggie shows up to Joel and says, you know what? I think, uh, you know, I think I, I've been reading up a little bit. I think you're, uh, you're kind of doing this wrong. You're feeding them the company line, um, yada, yada. She really kind of digs into Joel and, and Fleischman says something. He's such a jerk in this scene. He says something like, um, you know, you, you say I'm misogynistic. I love women. And that's just like the worst kind of comeback from that. Yeah, it's like, uh, I can't be Some racist. Women. I love women. Some women. He looks at Maggie detestingly. Yeah. What were you saying? It's like, I can't be racist because I have a black friend or exactly. something. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those lines, though. It's I terrible. Think, and I think it's really supposed to be, a. I think it's written as like a, a comedic joke, but for me, that doesn't is fly. Is it like... I don't know. It doesn't fly today. I'm, I'm not... Definitely would not fly today, but I wonder if it was flying he seems back like, in 1990. I don't know. But maybe you're right because he does effectively play just a jerk in this scene. Yeah, and that is uh, a real terrible one. And Maggie has a good dig back at him, though. Yeah. The child dig. What does she say? I think oh, she's yeah. saying, like, uh, Like, I know a child when I see one yes, or something like it. that. Yes, that's it. And Joe even recognizes that it's a dig against him. Yeah. Um, but essentially, you know, after that development, the next class that they teach, it seems that Joel's like, all right, fine, you want to do it your way? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's just like flipping through a magazine while Maggie is teaching the class. And it's very zen. It's like a little meditation, a guided meditation to try to help, um, you know, help these expecting mothers get into the mindset of uh, calm and peace uh, whenever they're going to actually give birth. Yeah. Uh, do you mind if I overanalyze this a sure, little bit? Sure, please. So earlier we talked about this episode's themes about lineage and leaving behind a legacy and you know, going through the cycles of life and parenthood. Do you think that this is also, this particular plot line is paying, paying homage to that? Because it seems like Joel and Maggie are almost playing a father-mother figure mm-hmm. and they're trying to teach other people what like the proper path to oh. take is. So they're kind of acting like parents. Just the way like Maurice is sort of trying to instill uh, this being a father. Being a father and trying to trying to instill his own his own lifestyle on Chris, which does clash, you know, eventually in that plot line. Yeah. And I think, um, in fact, just going back to Joel and Maggie, um, I actually love the way that's, that is tied up, um, sort of in this theme you're mentioning when they're flying back from, uh, the final class that they give, uh, actually someone actually goes into labor, Mm -hmm. uh, during the class and they successfully deliver, um, a baby. Um, we learn because when they're flying back, they're in the cabin of uh, Maggie's um, plane and they're kind of complimenting each other, Joel and Maggie. Like, you know, you look good holding a baby. You look comfortable. (laughs) Uh, And it's a beautiful, the way that scene ends is uh, just a static two shot on them. They're both smiling and Joel kind of like, you know, puts his chin, his hand on his chin and he's thinking it's, it's a very quiet, happy moment that they share. 
Yeah, uh, at one the of the there. few rare moments of them accepting each other's presence and their yeah, I capabilities. Think they, I think they really come together uh, at the end of this episode, um, which is nice to see, you know, because they're at each other's throats so often. So do you want to actually go into the 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 resolution of the Maurice plot lines, just since we're on sort of the theme, because it yeah. does kind of tie together. Yeah, but, let's get into it. Um, so Maurice... You know, he does have his differences with Chris. The adoption process doesn't really work out. But in the end, he does uh, visit Joel kind of late at night. He drives up to Joel's house, Mm -hmm. cabin rather, and uh, they have a little heart-to-heart. And it's Maurice who lays out this philosophy, this thought. Um, You know, his brother Malcolm has left the world. um, And within the same week, uh, a baby is born. And he kind of points out that uh, cycle Mm -hmm. of life. You know, one life ends another begins. Yeah, I really like that. And I like it. I'm such a sap for that type of uh, yeah. plot lines. It's a little sappy, but I think it's effective. It's a nice mm-hmm. thematic kind of... Uh, it's a very glass uh, half full. Yeah. Very positive, optimistic look at life, I yeah, think. Yeah, I, I, exactly. Is taking. And earlier in the episode, we see that there's an incredibly somber scene where Maurice is in his old uniform and he's looking at the old family photographs. Yeah, I love that actually. Of it's, his it's, brother. It's great. So he's he's in his military uniform um, and it's kind of funny because he's only wearing the jacket and mm. the cap and we see that he's kind of like wearing boxers. He's not yeah. wearing any pants. <laughs> but, you know, get this sort of forlorn feeling because it appears that, you know, um, Maurice is taking a trip down memory lane, probably been drinking a bit. He's very, very sad about the loss of his brother and he's looking over his will. This is when he decides he needs to figure out what he's going to do with his legacy. Right. And that's where we find him probably in his most saddest in a long while. But meanwhile, we get the plot line of Joel and Maggie and they're having like the resolution of theirs is incredibly happy because they've just brought a new life into it. So it's a cycle between sadness and happiness and the lows and the peaks that you can get from it because they're incredibly happy. Whereas Maurice is experiencing the depth of sadness that his Sorrow, life can experience. Yeah. yeah. But in the end, he, he kind of becomes the optimist. He, exactly. I, th- I think he, he takes it. I think Maurice definitely takes the news of, of losing his brother um, very strongly. I mean, you can tell he's got a soft side to him. I actually like it's, it's um, there's a lot of hints in this episode and in the deleted scenes that, uh, you know, it, it seems that perhaps Maurice didn't really get along well with Malcolm or yeah. his father. Mm-hmm. And that could be an explanation why uh, Maurice is such a dogged um, sort of entrepreneur, like a, a, a self-made man. He's just, he's amassed a lot of wealth on his own mm-hmm. um, without the help of his father who, you know, as we could infer mm-hmm. from this episode, probably had a favorite son and that favorite son was Malcolm. Yeah, um, exactly. Seems to have sort of, Maurice uh, seems to feel exiled because his whole family tradition is airplanes and flying. And Mar- while Maurice is an astronaut, Chris is like, oh, your dad must've been really proud of you. Um, no, it turns out Maurice says, you know, they they kind of looked at me as a, a can of spam or something up in space, you know, mm-hmm. like just. Yeah, and digging deeper into that, Maurice is a character that's, has immense wealth like you said previously, but that immense wealth came from a lot of hard work. He made that and he wants to make sure that he can give that away. He doesn't want the government Government to take take it it over. (laughs) Meaning in a deeper sense that he wants his work to be preserved and that he didn't get any help from anyone, not from the government, not from his family. He did it himself. I also really like, he likes to play that lawn game 
Croquet. There's, croquet. That's the scene essentially where Chris and Maurice have their breakup. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And I like that there's a sophisticated side to Maurice. Like yeah. he's a self-made man, but he's also, they got like a... Sort of like a hick, uh, you know, a hick character that we've mentioned, but he's wealthy. He has enjoyed the finer things in life. He's got the white polo sort of outfit. I guess it's croquet. You know, they're playing Yeah, croquet. yeah, yeah. That's standard and uppity. Chris <laughs> just is not, it's not gelling with Chris. That's not, <laughs> we would never see Chris like He has this. to have starch in his collar. I yeah, think that's he's what like, he calls come on, it. Maurice, I got starch in my collar. <laughs> I can't do this. And um, yeah, on that plot line, like you said, that's the one where they quote unquote break up or they are not. What, what do you call it, I guess, when you're... They break up. Oh, what's well, the, what's what the reverse the, of what an adoption process? Terminology yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think of that. Like what... Annexation? You know, if... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was... This is separate, but but similar. Um, you know, we could say that uh, Maurice adopts Chris, but what would you say from Chris's side? Chris is an adoptee, but if Chris were to agree to the adoption, is there a term for like, you know, Chris doesn't adopt Maurice... Maurice adopts Chris. Is there an um, equal and opposite term for if you are an adoptee accepting this? Adopted, I guess. I am adopted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. I would write it that way. (laughs) But yeah, so uh, legal terminology, you know, aside, they essentially split up. And Mm -hmm. uh, um, oh, here's a little scene in this plot line that... uh, I I think it's just it's it's in the episode, but I think it's begging to be cut. Like I don't know how they got this into the. I think I know what you're talking about. It's just so weird. Um, it's just so off. Um, but essentially, Chris um has been hanging out with Maurice, and he's like, "Well, I gotta go. I got a date." You know, you can tell that Chris is kind of a little um not really feeling this relationship, so yeah. he's trying to get out of there. Um, but later, maybe it's right after this or later, we cut to. Um, Chris in um, Maurice's uh, Cadillac Eldorado, who, you know, Chris, Chris has inherited this car. Yeah, Maybe generally, we skipped over that. Uh, you know, generously bequeathed to him. Yes. Um, so Chris has this very fancy convertible car, um, but we cut to, you know, at night, sort of a uh, top down. Uh, Chris sits up in the back seat. He's got a woman's uh, leg on his uh, shoulder and he's like, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, He's thinking too much about uh, what Maurice told him um, in the previous scene. I guess I'm, <laughs> I didn't really set this up well, but what happened before this scene is uh, Maurice, um, when he learns that Chris has a date, he says, listen, son, remember one thing, seeds sprout. Yeah. And it's just an awkward turn of phrase to use here. Maybe it's hard to express here, but all I'm trying to say is that this is a joke that completely falls flat. It just seems awkward. They're bringing sex into this whole thing. They're bringing this weird father. It's just stretching the limit of this father-son plot line a little too far. You know what? It's almost as if it's a nodding joke to the entire plot line itself. Because I can't even tell if it's being played for laughs or if he's trying to give genuine advice. And it's kind of like this plot line. Can't tell if they're trying to be serious <laughs> or funny. Or they're just like, you know, how can, can we... Can we play a trick on the audience? Like, what's, how far can we take this? Yeah. Um, uh, interesting to note, um, you know, this scene made it into the episode. And also, the song that's playing in this scene, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, accredited to, just a quick Google search, Shep and the Limelights is the artist. And the song is Daddy's Home to Stay. And that's um, possibly what's getting at Chris, why he can't perform uh, in the back of this um, Convertible, but 
anyway, yeah, there, there's so much uh, deleted scenes from this this plot line between Chris and Maurice. Um, I'm surprised that this one actually made it in. There is, I don't know if you caught, if you got to watch all the deleted scenes, there's so, there's maybe like 12 minutes of deleted scenes for yeah. this episode. Um, but there's a really cool scene, uh, definitely too long. Like I could see why they cut it, but there's a great scene between Maurice and Chris where they uh, have a sort of a, a funeral for Malcolm. Yeah, I know what scene you're talking about. And I like that scene. I would have almost have preferred that scene to be the resolution and they would have come to an understanding that the father's son wasn't working rather than what yeah. they displayed on air. Yeah, so I guess that's a problem with they probably could have used a couple more drafts of this episode uh, before shooting it because the way it was shot, I can understand why the scene was cut. It was very long, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's great. It opens with uh, Maurice playing taps on a bugle, which is, I guess, uh, customary for uh, the loss of a... Um, oh, he's mil- trying to play it. It's, oh, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't... Just, just like his singing. I think I like his bugle playing more than his singing, perhaps. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Chris... Um, wants to say some words at this sort of funeral uh, ceremony and he expresses something like I uh, I looked in the Bible for words that would make some sense but aside from ashes to ashes nothing really seemed right so turn back to Walt Whitman this is dirge for two veterans I see a sad procession and I hear the sound of coming full-keyed bugles. All the channels of the city streets, they're flooding, as with voices and with tears. The moon gives you light, and the bugles and the drums give you music. And my heart, oh my soldiers, my veterans, my heart gives you love. Yeah, so I like it when Chris, you know, reads from a book or recites poetry. He does that a lot. Uh, we'll see on K-Bear uh, commonly. But I find it really cool, really fascinating that um, he chooses Walt Whitman to read at Malcolm's funeral when in episodes past, uh, there was actually a huge kerfuffle. There was a huge feud between Maurice and Chris over Walt Whitman. And um, I expect if uh, Chris wants to talk about Walt Whitman, it would incite fury in Maurice. But you can see in the scene that Maurice is solemn and really respectful. And so that really shows this growth, this bond that they formed. Uh, you know, Maurice has completely forgiven Chris and really met Chris on his level. You know, Yeah, they're evolving between, beyond the employee-employer mm-hmm. relationship. Uh, so yeah, I totally forgot about that too. That they had the Walt a, Whitman before. Yeah, yeah. They, had, they had a point of contention between Walt Whitman and he obviously chose Walt Whitman specifically again. Just referring to brains, know-how, and native intelligence. That's the second episode yeah. this season. Should we talk about the ending scene? Yeah, the uh, the Joel and Maurice, which we kind of touched on, um, but we didn't fully cover. Yeah, um, we didn't cover the last minute. Which is very cool. I do want to kind of scoop in. Uh, one of my favorite Maurice lines, I think my favorite Maurice line that we've heard so far. But the Minifield Empire will not bear fruit in one man's lifetime. Yeah, I hear it didn't work out with you and Chris. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know, maybe you can start a trust. The Minifield Foundation. And it worked for the Rockefellers, the Gettys. No. Come up with something else, Joel. Really? What's that? I've decided to live forever. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Well, 
Better be going. I love that answer. Yeah, it's a great, it's funny, but he's completely serious. And he's like, this is just what I'm going to do. Going to live forever. Uh, and as I said, very optimistic. Um, I love seeing that in this episode as sort of the resolution with Maurice. Because as we said, he's journeyed from a very dark, um, almost all is lost part of his life where he didn't know what he's going to do with his legacy. Now he's very firmly um, empowered. Yeah, he'll just live his legacy. He doesn't have to give it away. And I like that. Yeah, that is. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a great uh, realization. Yeah, and we talked about this before, how he's a self-made man. Well, if he's self-made, then obviously he's a one-man army and he's just going to keep on marching to the beat of his own drum forever. Um, Oh, also just in this, uh, Maurice um, explains to Joel the state motto. Alaskan state motto is north to the future. And then he mentions, I believe, a German word, Lebensraum. Did you catch that? I did. Do, do you know what that means? Uh, let's see. Wow. Um, so just a first Google search. Um, the term comes from um, referring to a territory that a state or a nation believes is needed for um, its natural development. But this, is, uh, this term is especially uh, associated with Nazi Germany. It seems to have, the concept seems to have ar- arisen from Maybe or or maybe come to uh, common terminology through, I guess you know Hitler's taking over, trying oh. to take over Europe and the world. Is, Lebensraum means like we need. It's like a necessary evil. Uh, yeah, but it, I think it's strange that they use that that term paired with um, North to the Future. Uh, Maurice has such a positive outlook on the future of Alaska. Um, but when he pairs it with this German word, it has the weird, the wrong connotation, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm beginning to think that it's not actually the characters that are mis- uh, misappropriating phrases and words, but it's actually just the writers that are not understanding it. Because I think in the last episode, we had a, a couple phrases that we had talked about that don't make any sense. Like they're so close they're to being invented. the original. Yeah, they're yeah. kind of invented in this world. Yeah, and it seems like the writers just were like 95% there and then the 5%, the final stretch, it just didn't final work out. three yards there, they just, yeah. Yeah, they, could have used a couple more drafts perhaps. I guess since we're on the topic, we like to credit the writers and directors of these episodes. Yeah, let's throw them underneath the bus. Yeah, let's <laughs> specifically. Yeah, since we are calling them out, um, just got to say, uh, I had to go IMDb on this. The writers are Steve Wasserman and Jessica Klein, whose uh, most notable credits I can see um, are they work together on Beverly Hills 90210 and uh, also uh, seems to have been uh, sort of head writers or associate head writers on uh, As the World Turns, which is that like one of the longest running uh, soap operas that I think it's like the longest running TV series ever. Oh, wow. Um, They're on for a, a couple episodes, maybe a handful of episodes. The director, Max Tash, um, credited with uh, uh, just a lot of TV directing. He just, yeah. yeah, it seems to be a common theme that we're seeing between the writers and the directors of Northern Exposure. They just go on to uh, go to other television shows. They just bounce around, mm-hmm. not even with any particular uh, inclination or acclimation toward any particular type of television show because there's just no way that Northern yeah, Exposure like we is got, close we to have these, operas. We got all these episodes. We just got to get them shot. We got to get them written. Yeah, um, that seems like what's happening over here. Um, but... Let's talk about what we were trying to get to, the yeah. ultimate resolution of the episode. Mm-hmm. The very final shot, uh, Maurice drives off, just kind of wishes Joel the best. And then, just like Chris's prediction, it starts snowing. It's snowing for the first time. You know, we brought this up at the beginning of our episode. Yeah, we haven't seen snow until now. And Joel is actually like, 
Uh, he looks to the sky, snow? Like, what's happening? Mm-hmm. He's lived in Alaska. I guess he had... Expectations? He had, he had his own expectations and predictions uh, of what Alaska would be. I did see uh, uh, on, on the slate of one of the deleted scenes, uh, it was um, July 25th, 1990. So they were shooting this in the summer. Mm. came out in August. Uh, so really quick production on this. Um, anyway, what I'm, what I'm getting at is... Joel maybe expected snow, as you said, um, and it hasn't happened until now. So we're starting to get the seasonal change. Um, yeah, going into the next season. Uh, some fake snow, I should say. This doesn't look yeah. like real snow. This is movie snow. What type TV of snow, snow do you think it is? Do you think it's uh, coconut powder? Oh, yeah. Isn't that a thing like coconut shavings? Yeah, is, coconut shavings. Yeah. I don't know. It, it doesn't necessarily look like confetti, but it doesn't really look like snow. Yeah. Though I haven't seen a lot of snow in, in my life. but That's true. But, um, you know, this is actually one of those times that I wish they would have subbed in the, de- the deleted scenes over the one that aired because in the deleted scene, it just shows, I think, 30 seconds, give or take, of Joel just dancing by himself while the snow falls down. I think yeah. that would have made for a better ending. Yeah, the deleted scene is just the, the extension. Um, Joel does a little bit of a dance at the end. And yeah, cut out the scene with Chris in the convertible, extend this scene, get a little bit of that clarinetty jazz outro. Yeah. Um, Wait, we didn't wow. talk about how that. Did they, how did they mess this up yeah. so bad? <laughs> they, yeah, totally butched it. Um, yeah. But we didn't talk about the music. And really mm-hmm. quickly, uh, I love the instrumentation that they're using throughout the entire episode. Oh, so yeah, well, I'm actually a, a little offended. Can really? I say? Uh, <laughs> yeah, go. No, no, they please. They repurposed Maggie's theme. That's what I was going to say. The Bear. Why? And it's, and it's like, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's no longer piano and um, triangle. But anytime they mention Jesse, like I think... As soon as they say the name Jesse, we get uh, Maggie's theme, but it's played on maybe a guitar and the harmonica. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful song. I just, I just take offense that they use it for this plot of Jesse the Bear. Yeah, well, it, it ends on a different note. Yeah, um, it, it's a little, it's a different interpretation. Yeah, a different interpretation, and I love how it sounds. But you're right, the way in which it's being yeah. used makes no sense. Like I don't. If this was the first episode that um, I watched. I guess like our our guest maybe will have some insight. We'll see. But um, yeah, I would associate the song forever with Jesse the Bear. When in reality, it's always used for Maggie. <laughs> this is Maggie's theme. And it would make a lot of sense if the theme was being played over an intimate moment between two characters. This is for a bear. A bear. <laughs> I don't Why? <laughs> why? This bear that appears in this one uh, storyline, you know. Oh, sorry. Um, getting a little worked up here. Uh, okay, well, we've reached the end. But let's, let me just, I always regret uh, the end of, coming to the end of the episode and, and you know, I for, always forget to mention something. For instance, the last episode uh, is one of the few episodes that starts uh, with an opening gambit rather than an, the opening theme song. Yeah, yeah. This episode jumps right in with the theme song. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, did we miss? Well, small little tidbits. One thing that I like was when Chris and Joel are walking down the street and... Uh, I lo- again, a wonderful telephoto sort yeah. of walk and talk. I love that. They employ it a lot. Uh, we've seen the very same shot in a lot of different contexts, mm-hmm. um, but it's great. Well, one of the neat little details I like about that scene is that Joel's tie is tucked, tucked into, into his, his shirt. Yeah, I think he's done that uh, in previous episodes. I, lo- I love that style, though. Oh, I must have missed that. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually very common practice for doctors to do that because they don't want it to get dirty when they're performing surgery. Mm. So it just shows Joel's little doctor side, and I yeah, was like, yeah. what they do with it? His little, uh, his costuming. Another little tidbit, Ed, uh, whenever they're camping out, Ed is uh, reading a comic book. It's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures. I don't know which issue, but uh, 
you know what I'm starting to realize is that you know how on uh, every television show there's a breakout character like the uh, Zanny one. Oh yeah, just sort yeah. of the off off the wall kind yeah. of. Uh, it's the one that you most associate with the television show. Mm-hmm. So he's not the lead, but he's like the interesting. The eccentric, interesting side character. Yeah, exactly. And Ed is the perfect candidate for Northern Exposure for that character. He's I almost, believe so. I think every, I think a lot of our guests love Ed too. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, and we've already shown our love for Ed earlier in the episode mm-hmm. about being the universal handyman. But yeah, I, I love that he's reading Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's just really into pop culture. He's just this unassuming, um, unassuming kid who turns out to be very wise. Solves a lot of problems. Uh, got a great taste in music and art. And, and, you know, he's just like this youthful, cool kid. He's got the leather jacket. Yeah. Um, he's Movie got, buff. Like, he's just the coolest kid. Yeah. We're six episodes in, and I have to say, when I watched the pilot and I saw Ed, I thought he was going to be like this bad boy character because he had the leather jacket yeah, and everything. Okay. But he was nowhere near what he's he is now. He's a kind-hearted, you know, simple, uh, simple kid. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe a, a good sign-off for this uh, episode before we jump into our guest uh, analyst would be um, a little uh, a little request from uh, Chris in the morning. It's six fifteen. Chinooks rise and shine. I can smell those griddle cakes. Mom squeezing the Valencias. Dad's getting ready for work. Today is family day here on Chris in the morning. Let's make a special effort to do something nice for our parents. Clean up your rooms. Bring Dad the paper. Send the grand folks the video cassette of the kids you've been promising. Yeah, I like that uh, sentiment. You know, don't forget to call your parents every once in a while. Yeah, it looks like he's just borrowing from yesterday's exposure of A Year in the Life of, that very Leave it to Beaver type of mm-hmm. thing. Because what he's describing right there, like, that's not how modern families wake up. Like, no, we're like, <laughs> you're barely making it in time for the school bus. You basically packed PB&J sandwich, you're shooting them out of the door. Uh, there's no um, way they're doing all you're that. You're right, but what he's what he's um, trying to inspire is it can be that way. You know, you're you right. can do it. You can make it happen like that. That's make true. It, the decision is within happen. yourself. <laughs> yeah, which is great. I love that sort of reinforcement, that inspiration that we get. And in fact, Joel approaches uh, Chris on the sidewalk in, in one of the later scenes, and he's like, hey, you know, your broadcast actually got me to call my parents. Thanks, man. Like, we had a great time talking to the phone or something like that. You know, you know we never talked about it, but I guess... This confirms that Joel's parents are still alive. Yeah, so he mentions uh, to to Maurice when Maurice is looking for an heir. He says, uh, you know, sorry, it can't be me because uh, they're too uh, elderly. There's an elderly couple up in uh, Queens or Flushing. Is he from Flushing? Yeah, he's from Um, Flushing. Yeah, so his his parents are alive. And in fact, uh, he doesn't come from riches, you know, as you know, is a stereotypically maybe assumed of, you know, Jewish people. He, he living in New York. Yeah. But he, uh, he had to get his scholarship, you know, Alaska paid for his college. Mm-hmm. So he's not, he's not grown up with wealth. Uh, though he is sort of like a big city kid. Yeah. He's accustomed to New York lifestyles and living on the East coast intellectual hotspot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So then that was, I think the perfect time we're going to throw to our guest analyst. This episode This is my friend, Katie. Uh, she also works in film and TV. She is, uh, sort of like a production designer, the behind the scenes sort of uh, artistic director of uh, film and TV. And uh, also, in fact, uh, another list on her credits, she designs escape rooms. That is such a millennial job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just a nice little, uh, you know, she's turned her passion into a career. I love that. I love seeing that. It's fantastic. Uh, Anyway, sorry. Enough gloating. Katie, uh, let's hear what she has to say. 
Okay, so uh, that was my first time watching the show, um, and it was like, what, the seventh episode in the series? Um, so not only was I going in completely blind to the show, but I was also jumping into what I imagined to be like the middle maybe even the end of the season. <laughs> um, so with that being said, the, the, the characters in their world were most likely already established, but not knowing any of that, I had such a blast trying to figure out who all of those characters were. Um, the thing I probably liked most about the show was how there wasn't a single scene that ended the way that I expected it to. Um, you've got the guy from my big fat Greek wedding uh, getting adult adopted by his boss, who was apparently an astronaut that seems to now be running a radio station. Uh, you got two characters that at first I assumed were father and daughter or some kind of kin uh, going into a bear hunt turned sexcation and uh, with some leather jacket wearing third wheel who was way too cool about the whole situation. Um, you've got a lady pilot who appears to hate bagels, um, working together with a young doctor to teach a birthing class. All around pretty fun, and I'd recommend it. Um, if I had to change one thing, uh, it'd probably be the title to the episode. Uh, I did really like Kodiak moment. It works uh, for one of the one of the tracks, but uh, I feel like "Call Me Daddy" is a is something that works for all three of the storylines. Um, and oh my god, the picture that they use at the end credits uh, is probably actually my favorite thing. Uh, but anyway, thanks for introducing me to the show. Uh, definitely going on the list. Okay, so that was our guest listener Katie giving her opinions about the episode, and I am not too sure how I feel about her proposed title name call me daddy call me daddy uh yeah. yeah well what do you think about that I, I think it definitely tracks for maurice chris um if and i think she commented that uh she was a little confused by hauling and shelly's relationship at, at first he thought it was like father daughter um and then unfortunately <laughs> it became this weird sexcation yeah i liked her words. words for that but, sexcation um, what are your no what are your thoughts on that title suggestion well, it works for one of the plot lines, obviously the one with Holling and Schilling, but works for no Chris and Maurice. Oh wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say it sorry. works for Chris and Maurice more than um. Yeah, well, yeah, and you're Shelling. right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Oh, were you just a little confused? Yeah, I was just a little confused about that. No, you're right. It does work for them, and it does work with Joel and Maggie as well. You think so? They are because they give birth to well, not they're delivering. They yeah. deliver uh, a male baby. So, yeah, that could actually work. I think I'm just a little put off just by the phrase itself. Uh, maybe I'm just a prude. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Do you have a better, uh, do you have any other proposed titles besides Kodiak Moment? Like that That title works perfectly for the Jesse storyline, but honestly for everything else. It's a little bit of a reach, I guess, because it's supposed to be borrowing the phrase from a Polaroid moment, right? A Kodak moment. A Kodak moment. So, isn't there a Polaroid moment though? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure the phrase is a Kodak moment, but you know, oh, perhaps. Okay. So it borrows the phrase from there where it's some sort of like photographic moment in which you can remember forever. And I guess like the photograph of the bear definitely fits yeah, for that photograph of the bear, Joe and Maggie realizing that great moment between them giving birth to babies. Um, okay. Yeah. It's a yeah. shared, a shared, shared memory. Experiences. And that's pretty much what photographs are really. It's just oftentimes a shared family photo, you know? Yeah, it's just preserving the memory right then and there and then um, sharing it with others in a physical format. So perhaps that's why it's called um, Kodiak Moment, which is why I'm okay with the title. Yeah, um, I will say I think uh, the Call Me Daddy, while it is a, a little unsettling of a title, it definitely does fit with, um, 
you know, especially Katie's reaction to Shelly and Holling, because Call Me Daddy is, um, you know, it's like an unsettling sort of like, uh, <laughs> you know, like a, a sexy phrase, I guess. Um, and her interpretation, you know, just kind of like, I think any outsiders would be a little unsettled by uh, this relationship with this very old man uh, getting into a tent. What is it? Four times in the episode. Four times in the this episode. Eighteen year old. I like that she did. She initially thought that they were father and father daughter. And daughter. I, <laughs> like, what, can yeah, you imagine, imagine her? Yeah, exactly. Imagine, imagine Katie's face when she saw them, and he saw like hauling in that uh, what was like that onesie, like that wool onesie they was wearing. Yeah, the long like, johns. Yeah. I wonder how many times she had to rewind and just be like, "What is going on?" Please tell um, me that's not the, the father. Like, yeah. I'll take anything <laughs> for that not to be the father. <laughs> oh, please no. Okay, uh, let's move on from there. Um, she brings up uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. I don't know if you have ever seen that film, but uh, possibly um, more of a claim to fame for the John Corbett actor who plays Chris. He was mm-hmm. the husband in, uh, or I guess the groom, and husband in My Big Fat Greek Wedding. He's also in uh, some Sex in the City episodes, um, oh, I didn't know that at all. Yeah. I, I don't know if uh, Northern Exposure is his sort of biggest uh, claim to fame, well, but those are some of those are the kind of the, the three roles that come to mind when when I think of John Corbett. It's probably his breakout role. Wouldn't oh, it be? yeah, Northern I would Exposure? imagine so. You know, I think he was also in like the Wonder Years, maybe. I might be misremembering <laughs> this. Um, yeah, he, he is in The Wonder Years. I could be misremembering, but I think he plays uh, the main character's uh, sister's boyfriend. He says he plays a, a character named Louie, and I think he's only in one episode, so it might just be the pilot. Um, oh, wow. The main character is uh, it's Fred Savage, right? Right. Yeah, that's his brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny that he's in that. Um, yeah, I also like that she talks about Ed being too cool, too cool to be there. No, well, I think what she was saying is that Ed was a little too cool with the fact that this 63-year-old man is sleeping in a tent with an 18-year-old. Oh. That's what she meant, I, I believe, because it is a, you know, we talked about this. Yeah. <laughs> I thought just, it, she just meant like he was just too cool for anything in general. I mean, he's definitely too cool for school, for sure. Oh, yeah. With know, he's got the leather jacket, jacket. Reading Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it's, uh, it's also... Um, Pretty funny that she points out the final image in the credits. I think we talked about this in the pilot episode, but uh, um, yeah, every time the show ends, I think it cuts to black and maybe says, you know, Joshua Brand, John Falsey. And then we get our full credits in theme with this still image of uh, Joel and uh, Marilyn walking back to the his doctor's office. It's not really a, a very necessarily cinematic image. It's uh, kind of a strange still image that they just stole um, and out of context, it's like, what am I looking at? <laughs> it, yeah. And in fact, it, I always um, questioned that image when I was watching the show until, you know, I've given my my uh, theory is uh, that's the moment that Joel decides to stay, you know, because he's trying to flee Sicily, the whole pilot. And he decides uh, to be a doctor and stay in Sicily. That's like the image that encapsulates it all. Yeah, I agree with your theory too. I think that's the moment that Joel accepts that you know, he's going to be a doctor. He's going to be here for a couple of years. And he just reluctantly goes back to his quote unquote hospital, his <laughs> office. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we talked a lot, of, a lot of kind of fish out of water um, by having our guests kind of come in. And yeah, Katie mentions, you know, this is sort of towards the end of the series. Um, but she said she liked 
being, she really enjoyed being sort of the fish out of water and trying to solve this mystery of, uh, what am I watching? You know, <laughs> uh, I don't think that this is a super jarring episode for a newcomer to come into. What would I you say that... is the most jarring episode of this? Uh, like, I think, I think we probably said this before, but I think the show does a pretty good job of, um, dishing out exposition, you know, so that you're not completely lost if you hop in in the middle. But, uh, what's, what's the one that would, uh, throw you off the most? Definitely episode five. Definitely right, episode the Russian five. flu. Has some yeah, very strange dreams and, uh, and yeah, I think there's three dream sequences and it would just leave them with the impression that that's what they thought the show was about when it's it is the most oddball yeah but it's it's a great uh it's a great outlier in in its own way you know mm-hmm. well yeah man the next episode is our season finale number Ooh. eight short short season such a short season I, was it because CBS had no faith in Northern Exposure so they only gave him an eight episode order or did they willingly choose to have eight episodes do, do you happen to know that I answer? don't know the answer but that's something we should probably f- try to figure out before we start recording <laughs> the next episode <laughs> um, but no yeah I mean you uh, you posited uh, earlier on in our podcast you were wondering like would there be a cliffhanger this this series would you say it feels sort of um more episodic than serial, would you say? Or, or do you think it's all building up to something that's going to happen next episode? Um, I don't feel it building up right now. It's all it episodic. Kinda just feels just like kind of monster yeah, of the week. Uh, definitely lack of episodic. Term. Yeah, because you just kind of tune in and you watch what Joel uh, has gotten himself into or some scheme that he's trying to do to get yeah. out of his contract. Yeah, lots of scheming. Oh, yeah. Man, I cannot wait. We're definitely doing the uh, retrospective of... Uh, season one after we uh, finish <laughs> the next episode. But, but yeah, lots of scheming Joel. He's a little schemer. What is, what is the name of the season finale? That's a good um, question. So it's called The Aurora Borealis, um, but there's a couple different variations on the title and I haven't decided what I will actually announce it as for the next episode because, so it's commonly known as The Aurora Borealis, um, but some websites, uh, there's a subtitle um, that changes depending on where you're searching on the internet. Aurora Borealis, uh, a fairy tale for grownups, or Aurora Borealis, a fairy tale for big people. Oh, so, do you think that actually matters whether you use big people or grownups? No, I, I don't think it matters that much. Uh, I guess we can get into it once it, you know, yeah, we talk about that episode. But the Aurora Borealis for sure um, will play a role in our finale. Nice. All right. Oh man, there's so. Oh, I'm just. Uh, sorry, I'm really excited to talk about it because um, I'm remembering stuff about it. But obviously, you know, we got to save some excitement for the next episode. Yeah, definitely. All right, Charles. I'll see you next week. All right. See you next week, man. Northern Overexposure podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Katie for watching the show and being our guest analyst. When Katie heard about the podcast, she asked if there are any bears in the show. And of course, thank you for listening.